Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. This is Bruce Goddard. This is the View from a Hearse podcast. Just want to remind you that View from a Hearse really means that we just look at life with the end in mind. And I've got a special guest. He's my friend, Chuck Gallagher, today. Chuck and I met. I just looked Chuck. I think it was like nine years ago, and Chuck was presenting at one of my meetings in, in my business career, and not about what we're talking about today, but, but about his business and his area of expertise that, that he was helping my company. Chuck is a well-known author. He's a much-in-demand speaker. He is a business entrepreneur. He is a man of great character, but he learned some of his character the hard way. And I think you're going to be blown away by what you hear. He's appeared on CNN, National Public Radio. I think, Chuck, you had your own radio show for a period of time. He's helped a heck of a lot of people. So if you're in a place where you have messed up and you're wondering if there's a path back to normalcy, you need to listen to this. Or if you have somebody in your life that has gone off on the wrong path and they're wondering if there's a way to get back to regular life, you need to listen to this. And then there's other people that are out there in the business world or whatever world you live in that are wondering or thinking maybe about taking shortcuts in life. I used to play a lot of golf, Chuck, and... I played with a guy that was older than me. He was my friend, my dad's friend. And I would hit it about 300 yards. I'm liable to be in the other fairway, but I would hit it a long way. Wade hit it right down the middle about 200 yards. He never got out of the fairway. So when we, we got to the hole, on most holes, Wade would beat me. And he would always say, it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. And that is really true, and that's what this – episode is about you can get in the deepest rough in life you can be in a place behind the tree where you you don't have a swing and you can always find a way out of the woods back in the fairway and on the green so chuck thank you for joining me i know you're a busy man i know you're flying all around the country why don't we start by just let you tell a little bit about what you do now well bruce first thanks for allowing me to be on the show. I'm I'm really excited about this because like you said, we met nine years ago. I I knew you or, and, or of you, and I have heard you speak. And so uh, it's just really an honor to be here. You and I have spoken at some of the same conventions over the years, either at the same day or the day before or after, but I know we've crossed paths out there. Absolutely. We have definitely crossed paths from time to time. In terms of what I do today, it really boils down to two things. I'm a vice president with American Funeral Financial, and we do insurance advancement funding. And 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 I think for all the friends with SCI, either I've been to your place training or I'm coming to your place training, but this is something that's been ongoing for a number of years. Tell us just what that is. I mean, you've got people that come in that don't have money and have to pay for a funeral, but they have insurance. Briefly say what your company does. It's a pretty cool thing. Well, okay. So so here's the thing. It's an, it's a weird way of putting this, but you know, at the time of death, someone like you, funeral director is going to have to say, and how y'all going to pay for this now? <laughs> yeah. 
which is the question most people don't want to have to ask. But for the most part, that's going to be, you can write me a check, you can put it on your credit card, or, well, mama had a MetLife policy, can we use that? In essence, what we do is we're that conduit that verifies the policy and funds the funeral home. So the funeral home has no receivable and the family has access to those funds. It's kind of like at death, insurance is a, is a source of funds, but there's a combination. It's like you got to unlock the key to be able to access the funds. And American Funeral Financial has that combination. We unlock the key and make the funds available. Obviously, this episode is not about this, but I thought it's pretty cool just to say what you do. Because here, here's the thing, Bruce. I got into the industry, to the death care industry back in 1991. But uh, all of that said, over the years, now it's with American Funeral Financial. And in addition to that, I'm a professional speaker. So I end up within the industry and outside of the industry, uh, talking a lot about the choices we make, the consequences that follow, effective leadership, and, and, and a variety of things that relate to our station in life and the fact that our history does not always create our destiny. And that's true. So talk about growing up. Okay, so this is something you're not going to anticipate, but we'll play this out briefly. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. I was adopted at birth. So my my parents were in Baltimore. My dad died when I was two of diabetic complications. Eventually, my mother, when I was about six, said, let's go back to the Carolinas where her family was. It's a kinder, gentler place. It might be a little easier to raise a, you know, little brat like me. So during that process, you know, just like anybody else, grew up, went to high school, finished that, went to college, started as a music major, by the way, that lasted all of one semester. Uh, they said, teach. I said, perform, teach, perform, teach, perform. Apparently I had no talent. So <laughs> I, I went into accounting because I did not want to be a poor musician. And that led me to an entirely different place. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But, but as a weird side note, when I was 27 years old, my wife and I were thinking about having our first uh, child. And I wanted to know the biology of my past. I mean, I knew I had uh, a loving mother, so couldn't complain at all, but I wanted to know the biology. And so I began to try to see if I could get some records released just to tell me the biological background. And by the way, I was born in 1957. There were no records of any substance in those no. days. So long story short, in six hours, I ended up finding both biological parents. I developed a relationship with my biological mother. In fact, my biological mother and adopted mother met each other. Uh, they developed a relationship. And when my and I refer to it this way, but when my mother, my adopted mother passed away at my age of 47, my biological mother then readopted me. So I have literally been adopted twice. Wow. Wow. So that's a weird side note yeah. to, you know, what's your past? Unbelievable. I don't think I've ever heard of that. I don't think I've ever heard of you getting adopted and your biological parent adopting you back. That's wow. Yeah, yeah it, it was uh, different. It, you know, she said to me, she said, look, you have no legal standing in my life. I gave you birth, but you have no legal standing. So she said, would you be willing to be readopted? Bruce, it was hilarious walking into the courtroom because here's my mother. Her hair is like my color at this time. Mine was a little darker at the time. But we walk in and the judge, you know, sits down and he said, OK, in the case of uh, Brycey Stroud and Charles Gallagher, where is the child? 
And I raise my hand at 47 years old. And the judge, you know, <laughs> drops his glasses and he looks at me, just freaks him out. And then he proceeds to lecture me on the fact that if I'm readopted by this person, that means as she ages, I'm now responsible for her. And I thought, well, this is probably not the message he does on a regular basis. I can imagine. That's unbelievable. So where'd you go to school, Chuck? You got you became a CPA, right? I did. I went to school at Appalachian State University. That's in the University of North Carolina system. There's a little train up in Boone, North Carolina called Tweetsie. So we called that UNC at Tweetsie. Finished there, got my master's degree, became a CPA, um, and that was in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, you're a little bit younger than me, but we're definitely in the same era. We definitely grew up during the same time, that's for sure. So you live in Greenville, South Carolina now, right? I live in Greenville, South Carolina, yeah. yes. So tell a little bit about what happened in your as a CPA, about your rise and what was going on in your career. And Well, I think all of us have what I'm going to refer to as God-given talents. Now, you're a man of faith, so we're going to have some faith conversation. Good. Floating Go for through. it. Go for it. But I think we all have God-given talents, and, and mine was music at the outset, which meant I liked to perform. So consequently, when I became a CPA, the issue was, what do you do as a CPA? And I was really good at selling, and I was really good at performing. So I consequently became a tax partner in a firm. And we did lots of seminars and things that made it easy for us to pick up business. And that was kind of what my role was. Now, for any accountant that listens to this, this what's getting ready to come out of my mouth is heresy. But <laughs> as a CPA, I didn't care if it balanced. Okay. If you had $10 million in the bank account and your bank reconciliation was off by $564, it was irrelevant to me. It was immaterial. Now, the true accountant wants that to balance so bad. I was more interested in picking up business, and I was good at that. Eventually, I testified before Congress on various aspects of federal tax law. I wrote articles in national magazines. I taught continuing education courses in 30 states. But 1987-ish, 88, I was, uh, how do I put this, Bruce, overextended and underfunded. In other words, I had too much debt. I mean, I lived under the idea that if you wanted it, you buy it, you bought it on credit. As long as someone was willing to extend you credit, then apparently it's okay. And long story short, I got a call one day from my local banker. And he said, Chuck, he said, you're two months behind in your house payment. Is there a problem? Now, Bruce, I was two months behind in my house payment, <laughs> which... That's not the worst thing in the world, but I was two months behind in my house payment. But here's the deal. The banker that called me, he and I were what I would call chicken eating buddies. We went to church together. We were in the same Sunday school class together. He liked me. I like him. And anytime he had a business client that needed accounting, he would send the business to me. So as soon as he said that, I went from rational thought to lizard brain. And in my head, it was like, oh my gosh. I can't tell him that I'm two months behind in my house payment because I'm a CPA. I'm supposed to be able to manage financial affairs and I clearly can't manage my financial affairs. And if I tell him that he's going to think, why am I sending him business? And if I'm, why am I sending him business? Maybe I should send it to somebody else. And if he sent it to somebody else, I'd have less money. And if I had less money, I couldn't pay the bills that I couldn't pay right now. So am I going to tell the truth? Hmm. So I said to him, are you sure that payment hasn't been misapplied? Now, 
okay, you and I lived during 1987, right? Right. So we still had punch cards. It was still COBOL and Fortran. You know, personal computers were just starting to come out. I could get by with that. And he said, well, I, I don't think so, but let me check. I'll call you back. I was like, Phew. oh, I've got a quick reprieve. Now, for purposes of our conversation, weird question, but this is the question. Why do smart people do dumb things? <laughs> and the answer most of the time is something has happened in their life that has triggered them. Something took place and it causes you to uh, get wild eyed and start thinking about, oh my gosh, we've got a problem here. What are we going to do? And I'm totally switching gears with you for a second, but it would be the equivalent of in the death care industry. We just found out after the burial that we buried the person in the wrong space. Holy moly. What are we going to do? Because what what will go through your head is, well, maybe we can shift someone over. Maybe we can just fix this and, and get it to work. Do I tell the family? What are they going to do? Are they going to hire a lawyer? Is this going to come back on the company? Did I do this correctly? Was the blind check done right? How did this happen? And all of these things start swirling through your head as you try to figure out what in the heck am I going to do? That was what was happening. When there's a need, we, by nature search for an alternative, okay? Or an, at least some opportunity to fix it. On that day, in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, I've, I've got to solve this, this problem. Maybe I could get my partners to advance the funds, which by the way, Bruce, they probably would have. Except the ones that signed the checks were gone that day and it was a Friday and they weren't going to be back till about seven o'clock that night. That wasn't going to work. I guess I could call mama. Now at the time she lived in Maryland. However, the question then would become, well, we don't have PayPal or Venmo or whatever just to instantly transfer money. I, I, I couldn't get it in time. Unfortunately, I decided, oh, well, I'm a trustee of a trust. I can get it there. So I had a conversation with myself. By the way, a lot of times the things like this happen, we talk to ourselves. I had a conversation with myself and said, you know, if I could, I didn't use the word steal, I called it borrowing. Mm -hmm. If I could borrow some money from the trust, what I would do is I would pay it back and I would pay it back with a higher interest rate than what the trust was getting because that way I would feel better about what was taking place. And this little conversation took place back and forth and, and I stole the money. Hmm. And, uh, and that day, Banker calls me back. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's not trying to be funny, but it is kind of in an odd sort of sense. But he calls me back and he says, Chuck, I've checked the records. And before he could finish, I stopped. I said, I am so embarrassed. I said, oh, my gosh. His name was David. I said, David, I am so embarrassed. I said, you know, my wife and I, we had our first child just two months ago. Of course, he knew that because we were in the same Sunday school class. I said, she pays the bills. This is what kind of Adam and Eve moment, you know, well, right. she ought put, put it on her, right? That's right. Put it on her. All the women now are like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible guy. Why do you have him on? But she pays the bills and she thought I was paying them. I thought she was paying them. Bruce, I'm going to be really candid with you. She didn't pay the bills I did. That was a total lie. Hmm. But I needed to say something in my feeble brain 
to make this seem okay. So I told him, I said, I'm going to bring a check down to you with stolen money. I didn't really say that. I'm going to bring a check to you to get this taken care of today. I'm so embarrassed. And he responded back. He says, well, Chuck, when I was uh, in college, I passed a bad check once. And it was like we had this male bonding moment and, you know, he revealed something to me and I was paying this off and, and that's how it started. Once you start that, it makes it easy to do something else the second time, right? It does. Yeah. In fact, if you think about it, because I've had a lot of people in a lot of presentations all over the country say, well, I would never do anything like that. So, okay. Yeah, I hear you. So <laughs> quick question. Do you, um, you know, I, I will ask this a lot of people, you, you know, would you voluntarily do something unethical? Well, most people would say no. Okay. Well, uh, is it possible that breaking the law is unethical? Like if you went into a convenience store and you stole something, is that unethical? That's break, voluntarily breaking the law. Well, yeah, of course it is. Great. Driven on the interstate highways lately. Yeah. And then they smile. It's like they're psychic because they know the next thing is. And you're going five to 10 over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you're voluntarily breaking the law that you just a minute ago said was unethical, but you do it every day. And so here's the thing, and this is really important because really smart people, uh, well-intending people can choose to do things. And if it seems, seems operative words, socially acceptable, then they do it and they can do it over and over again. And you get lulled into that sense of, I'm driving down the road, I'm doing 80 in a 70 mile zone. As long as it's yeah, 10 below, it's probably okay. I mean, after all, who's gonna pull over a dude in a black camera? So sometimes we find ourselves caught up in situations where we're doing something that's not exactly the right thing to do, but if we do it, and we get by with it, we're lulled into that sense of it must be okay. Doesn't and bother you. Yeah. We do it again. Right. Wow. And you know, straight up, you go to Galatians and it says you reap what you sow. I generically call that in the corporate audience every choice has a consequence. But take to the bank, there will be a consequence. So what happened after that? Well, first time, took the money, paid the bank. At the end of tax season, got a big bonus, paid it off, but it was easy. So the next time I needed money, well, I went back to the same till because it, I mean, it was like my own private hedge fund. I was the accountant for that. I knew about it. I was the trustee of the trust. So it was easy to take it out. And I did. And I paid it back the second time. But after the second time, when I went to, back for the third time, it wasn't... It wasn't as important to pay it back because I had convinced myself, this is internal mind BS, but I had convinced myself that I would always pay it back. So if on the third time I didn't pay it back as quickly or in the same way, well, that's okay because I am going to pay it back. Again, because I know of our mutual connection in, in the death care profession, it would be the equivalent of, and I'm not saying that I know anybody that's done this. Well, 
I do actually, but that's not relevant to this, but it would be the equivalent of I own a funeral home. I've got to pay. I've got to tote the note. I've got to pay Bank of America or whoever it is. And, and our call volumes down this month, but we've got all these pre-plans in this trust. Well, I can just take some of the money out and I'll, I'll make my mortgage payment. Next month, the call volume's good. I put it back into the trust, but I find that as I need some money, it's easy to take it out because I'm banking on the fact that these folks will be needing the money in the future. They don't need it today, but I need it today, but I'm going to pay it back because it will work. And eventually something is going to happen. The truth will come out and the consequence will arise. In my case, in 1990, after three years of doing this, again, not very proud of that statement, but in 1990, I got a call from one of my clients that needed money that I had stolen unexpectedly they needed the money. And it's like a card being pulled in the house of cards. Mm. Most of the time when something happens, it happens unexpectedly. And because it's unexpected, you don't have the time to try to figure out how do I solve this problem? It's just, oops, I'm outed. And in 1990, that outing took place. Hmm. And so what happened? Bruce, I was in a, um, I was doing a, a continuing education class for a bunch of CPAs out in Idaho. Eight hours of tax law. I know that is such a <laughs> thrilling thought for most people. At lunch, I got a call from one of my partners who said the client that I had, quote, invested money from, which in reality meant I had stolen it, had an unexpected financial issue and needed to liquidate that investment uh, ASAP. Now, Straight up to you, God knew and I knew the truth. No one else on the planet knew. My wife had no clue. My partners had no clue. But that got your full full attention when that call came in, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. That afternoon, I, I honestly do not remember the afternoon that day. I mean, I went back in. I did what I needed to do. I finished the rest of the course. When it was over and all the accountants left, getting their continuing education credits. I, I, I sat down on the stage that was there and I cried like a baby because I, I knew life as I knew it was over. You know, all of a sudden the, the successful Chuck was now getting ready to be outed as a liar and a thief. And that night, I'll, I'll never forget this, but I went to the hotel room and I considered suicide. That, that was the dark night of the soul moment. That was the moment where it's like, okay, I, I am not a good husband. I am not a good father. I am not a good partner. I have done this. I've got enough life insurance that if I'm, if, if I'm not living on this planet, the money will pay back what needs to be done. My wife will live comfortably. My kids can go to college. They're very young. They'll forget me. I will be a distant memory. And that's all I'm worth. You had it rationalized all out, right? Absolutely. But, but I will say, as, as a good guy, I hate pain. So any way to think about offing myself seemed painful. So that night I went to the dresser drawer in that hotel room and I got the yellow pages and I started looking for psychiatrist, psychologist, proctologist. I didn't care. I needed to talk to somebody. I'm glad you didn't go to the proctologist. <laughs> yeah, I know. That would have been a pain. And well, we yeah, know. that's another pain. Okay. Yeah, that's a different kind of pain. Bruce, the first call 
you've reached the office of Dr. Such and Such. Our office hours are from 8.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. You've reached us after office hours, but at the sound of the tone, leave your name, number, and a brief message, and we'll be happy to call you back. Have a nice day. And this was in Idaho, right? This is in Idaho, Boise, Idaho. Yeah. And I'm like, have a nice day. If you're thinking about suicide, we'll tick you off. Just saying. <laughs> and I got that on the first call, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth call. Every time, same thing. Seventh call, Dr. Such and Such's office. And I'm waiting for the rest of the message. And there wasn't. And it was like, ooh, I got somebody. I said, I, I, I need to talk to somebody. Guy on the other end of the phone says to me, oh, I thought you were my wife. I am running 10 minutes late. I was supposed to meet her at a restaurant. If I had known it was you, I wouldn't have answered the phone. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm considering suicide. And then he said, let's talk. Wow. Here's the thing, Bruce. I have no idea who I talked with. I've got no name. I don't know if he was a psychiatrist, psychologist, or the janitor. No clue. But he said something to me, and I can hear it in my head to this day. He said, son, he said, you have made a terrible mistake, but you are not a mistake. Wow. Well, that's a lesson. That's multiple lessons in that. I mean, we, we know throughout the Bible, God uses all kind of people, and there's no telling who that was, but it was the right person for you at that moment. That was a, that had to be a God thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, when he, when he said it, he repeated it. He said, you've made a terrible mistake, but you are not a mistake. And then he said, the choices you make tonight will determine the life you live in the future and the legacy you leave for your two children. Make those choices wisely. Hmm. Now, look, I got no idea who I talked to. I can't call him. I can't thank him. But what I do know is at that moment, at that point in time, over a telephone for two people who were total strangers, an angel appears in my life and gives me a message that I needed to hear. Unbelievable. And Bruce, I've shared that message to, I can't tell you how many people in how many places, and invariably someone will come up after a presentation that I do, especially in person, and say, I needed to hear that. Yep. So we don't often know in our lives how we impact other people. And fortunately, because we can't know it, we can't therefore let ego get in the way and somehow elevate ourselves. It's just God put the angel in that spot to help me that night and to know that somehow, somewhere, other people need to hear that. You are not a mistake. You made a mistake, but you're not the mistake. Unbelievable. Right. Or not a mistake. Wow. So then tell me, fast forward, what, what happened? What From there, you had to go back home. You had to face well, the music. I went back home. I admitted to my partners and to my wife that I was a liar and a thief. That was... That just really sucked. I just People need to understand, this is a very successful businessman. He's a CPA. He's doing seminars of all over the country on tax law, which is not for the faint of heart, not only for the, the subject, but you got to know what you're talking about. I mean, you're obviously very smart and on the rise and to go back and, 
admit that. What caused you to say, I've got to come clean here? I mean, you got the message that you're, you, you've made a mistake, you're not a mistake, but what, what was the tipping point to say, I got to be honest with what happened? How did you get there? Well, here's the thing, Bruce. At some point, you know, I'd like to say, oh, it's just my character. That's not true. Why did I come clean? There was no other choice. That's just the honest answer. There is a point at which if the truth just jumps up and stares you in the face, I mean, you can sit there and say it's not the truth, but the truth is the truth. People are going to know the truth unless there had been some magic pot of money someplace that I could have tapped into to keep the illusion going, which by the way, in all honesty, had there been a big old pot of money someplace, I would have tapped into it, paid the other person off and kept the illusion going. Right. But that I've also been- known people, Chuck, that are confronted with the truth and keep lying. They never admit that there are people in jail for the rest of their life that still had admitted that they did whatever they did. I get it. Yeah. It, the, the unfortunate thing, Bruce, and, and this is just my personal opinion, personal experience is, you know, if you accept responsibility for whatever it is that you did, in my case, it was stealing money. If you accept responsibility, I'm using drugs. I shouldn't be. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've cheated on my wife. I, whatever it happens to be, if you accept that responsibility, it doesn't mean there will be no consequence. There will be a consequence. For sure. But it's probably going to be a more tolerable consequence if people can see I accept responsibility for what I did. So I've got to ask your partners, what what was their response when you when you came clean? Honestly, it was the honest experience was going back literally the next day and sitting down with with two of my partners, the ones that were there. And I said, we need to talk. We went to the conference room. They thought I was going to bring back a new client. And I I just laid it out. Here's what happened. And Bruce, one of the guys, and I don't fault him for this. I understand it completely. But one of the guys looked at me, had steel blue eyes. And he said, well, I have a solution. Now, honestly, I flew from Boise, Idaho to Charlotte and drove to Morganton, North Carolina. And all that flight, I was like, man, there's got to be some way out of this. There's got to be some way out of this. I mean, maybe we can go, maybe as my partners, I know they're not going to like me, but maybe we can borrow the money, pay everybody off, keep everything on the hush-hush, on the down low. And maybe there's a solution. You're thinking of everything. Yeah, I'm sure. I got a solution. I'm like, yes. And then he looked me in the eyes and he said, I think you need to off yourself. You know, I'm a hunter. I'll give you the gun, go down by the riverbank. It's going to be a messy thing, but at least it won't be in your house for people to remember. He actually gave you that advice. Yeah. He said, you've got plenty of insurance. He said, you don't deserve to be a father or a husband. Your wife knew, right? No, she had no clue. Okay. That reinforces what I'm saying. Solve the problem off yourself and we'll clean up the mess. Now, the other one looked at me. Now, I'm not saying this politically because it has a different flavor now than it did. But with Donald Trump flair, like you're fired in the old days before he was a politician. (laughs) And I expected that. And then he said to me, now, you need to hire a good attorney. And we deserve your full honesty because we didn't have anything to do with this. And this could have an amazing negative impact on this firm. 
And we got kids too that need to go to college. So you owe us that. He was right. Right. Do you still have contact with these guys at all? Yes, actually. In different ways, kept contact with them. I, I will tell you, it's probably about 10 years ago, maybe 12. Kind of hard to put in context when you're my age, but you get right. that. I was at an Easter uh, service. Uh, it was a, a cantata or something at the church, uh, but a lot of people from the community had come, but I decided I was going to go. And I went and on the way out the door, I saw Eric, the guy that said I should off myself. Hmm. It was, it was really a powerful moment. He came up to me. He said, I want to give you a hug, which shocked me. He said, I'm really proud of what you've done <laughs> and the life that you've made for yourself. Unbelievable. And he said, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry for what I said. Unbelievable. That's moving. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Brought tears to my eyes then. Does it, to, it does to me today. I mean, that's a whole nother lesson that people are human. You say what you say, but you still, you never know when the opportunity is going to be to to make it right. And that had to majorly impact your life because that guy has always been out there in your mind. Yeah. You can understand how he felt, but for him to come back and see. So what <laughs> happened after that? So I know you had to go tell your wife, how did she handle that? Not well, <laughs> <laughs> not well. I'm sure. No, no, that was, um, that was very, very difficult for her. And the thing that was particularly <laughs> profound was I broke trust. Now, you and I are old enough to, remember, to, to know this. There may be some folks that are going to be listening that will not catch what I'm getting ready to say. But for her, the question was, after that, when I opened my mouth and said something, was it live or was it Memorex? Right. In other words, is he telling the truth or is this just another lie? Right. That had a profound impact on our marriage or the ability of that marriage moving forward. But that day... If I remember this, she said, oh my gosh, we have got to call our pastor, which we did. He came over the next day and we visited and, and talked. And he said, do you mind if I share this with one of the members of our church? Now, Bruce, let me be really candid with you. I lived in a small town. <laughs> I was a, I was a medium-sized fish in a small town. And I had just broken the law. So I had to ask myself the question, what, no, don't tell him. Everybody's going to know. It ain't going to take long right. for this to get out. So it was like, yeah, tell anybody you want, because it, it's going to get out anyway. Right. I can't put a lid on this. He talked to a guy by the name of Jerry Stevens. Uh, Jerry Stevens we both went to First Baptist Church, Morganton. We were in Rotary Club together. We were not chicken-eating buddies. I didn't run in the same circles that he did. He was a little older than I was, still living. But Jerry owned several cemeteries, owned Motlawn Memorial Park in Raleigh, Guilford Memorial Park in Greensboro, and Burke Memorial Park in Morganton. So the pastor talked to Jerry. On, a, on the Sunday night, I came back on a Thursday. So on Sunday night, Jerry said to me, or called me and he said, would you, uh, would you come over and talk with me? Sure. Now, being really honest, my wife was like, maybe he can get us out of this mess. Maybe there's something, 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 because she was now 
like a salmon swimming against the stream. She's just trying to figure out how do we survive this thing? And I get it. I go over and sit down with him and he said, do you mind if we pray? And I said, no, I'm, I'm good with that. His wife offered me some sweet tea, which was really good in the South. You know, <laughs> and she left and he and I talked and he said, tell me about it. And much like what you and our conversation, I, I just laid it all out. And he said, I appreciate you sharing. He said, we'll be praying for you and sent me on my way. And I got back and my wife was like, what happened? Is he going to do something? And I I said, he just said they'd be praying for me. And she was like, well, what, (laughs) you know, why, why did you even need to go talk with this guy? And, and, And so forth. My wife was irritated, quite frankly, because she was trying to find that instant solution. And and, you know, he was the w- local wealthy business guy. And so, you know, she was looking for the bailout somehow. A couple of days later, he calls me. Now, you keep in mind at this point, now I am a fired CPA who is unemployed, who has committed a crime, who is going to lose his license as a CPA. That is, there's no question about that. Yep. So, uh, and I've got a lot of debt now. Right. stolen debt plus debt on the house that we now can't make the payment on or on the car. We can't make the payment. I mean, it's just like, it was this avalanche. Right. So he calls me and he said, um, the house that you're living in, he said, my son and his wife are getting ready to have their third child. And the house they live in is too small for them. He said, would you be open to the possibility that we could get your current house appraised to appraisers, average the appraisal, and just let him buy that house from you so it gets you out from under that debt. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm good with that. And he said, and in terms of your car, if he were willing to take over the payments on your car, would you let him buy your car? He has a car that's paid for. It's an Isuzu of some sort. I forget what it was, but he said he'll give you that car to drive and he'll take over the payments on your, at the time it was a BMW 735. I was living a really high lifestyle. Like, yeah, I can, I can definitely do both of those. And Bruce at the time, my wife and I were all, we were building another house. Half done at this point, you know, construction loan thing. So a couple of days later, Jerry then calls me after I connected with his son to do the house. Jerry then calls me and he said, would you mind coming over one more time? Do you have the plans for your house? I said, sure. So I walk over with the plans or drive over with the plans to the house. He had a pool table and he said, "Uh, do you mind if my wife stays in here for this conversation? I said, no. He said, roll out the plans to your house. And I did. And then he said, Gene, go get the plans that we were talking about building. And she rolled out the same set of plans. Got to be kidding. The exact house. Unbelievable. So then he said, now we were planning on building this house. Here are the plans we were planning on building. Here is the house. It's the exact same. The only difference is the configuration of the bathroom and it's in construction right now. So anything can be changed. 
And I think we had a quarter of a million dollars worth of construction loan on what then would have been a $500,000 house. He said, so if you're open, we'll take over the construction loan and take over that house. And that way that will get you out from under that debt. That's incredible. I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. And then he offered me a job. Now he offered me a job being his controller for Burke Memorial Park, Guilford Memorial Park, Motlawn Memorial Park for 25,000 a year, which was a $200,000 pay cut, <laughs> but I had no job. Right. And, and you had, so, you had court case hanging over you about to come too, right? That's exactly correct. Literally because of his kindness, I got into the death care business. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. That not only got you out of the pinch, but it got you into the business that you were going to do the rest of your life. What that is a, absolutely what correct. a story. So, talk about. I know you eventually were arrested. Talk a little bit about that. How that came about. Well, first thing is I relinquished my li my license as a CPA. It's got to, they were going to take it anyway, so I just give it. You know, there's no point in fighting something you know you're going to lose on. By the way, with the help of family and friends, I made restitution to the people I'd stolen money from. They they did not like me, probably to this day don't, right. but everyone got all their money back plus 9% interest. That doesn't make it right, by the way. Right. It's just that happened. The federal government wanted to prosecute me, but they knew that I had legitimately borrowed money with cosigners to pay restitution. So the federal government deferred my prosecution for three years. During that time, I just need to say this just so to, to paint the picture clearly. I was working with Jerry. Jerry sold uh, Guilford Memorial Park to Lowen. Then it didn't turn out as he wanted. So he decided that wasn't going to happen again. He sold Motlawn to Stewart. And so in 93, remember this was 91 when he gave me the job. In 93, Bill Rowe came in with, with, with Stewart Enterprises to, to buy this property. And I was scheduled to become a convicted felon. I wasn't yet, but that was, that train was on the track and that engine was moving. And Bill Rose said to, to Jerry, he said, so should we keep Chuck? And Jerry said, he's done a masterful job. I think it would be a, a waste not to, but transparently, here's the background. Here's the train that's on the track. We don't know what's going to happen, but here it is. Bill Rowe with the approval of Frank Stewart, allowed me to become part of Stewart Enterprises in, in 1993, realizing I might become a convicted felon. So short story to that is in 1995, the federal government said, son, it's time to plead. And I'd already agreed to plead guilty, which I did. They said, thank you for your guilty plea. Now we'll tell you when you're going to be sentenced. Nothing, by the way, moves fast with the federal government, just so we're clear. So we'll tell you in June of that year, I was sentenced. I was praying for probation because by this time five years had passed right. and i'd been working my butt off every day right, right. And, and, pay, and, and made restitution and all and that made restitution. but the judge sentenced me to 18 months active three years probation and then they told me we will tell you when to report <laughs> and so on october 2nd 1995 i walked by happy butt into federal prison and became 11 642 an inmate how long were you there in the federal system, I was sentenced to 18 months. You have to serve 85% of it, which was a little over 16 months. All right. So you were there 16 months. Wow. So now yeah. let's fast forward. The details, that's a whole nother story of you being in prison. There's no telling who you met there. 
But the story is so riveting because I know the end of the story, and I know that you now have made yourself not only just successful, but you helping a ton of people, and <coughs> you're even doing it today, you know, on this podcast, but you do it all over the country. When you came out, how did you start again? Give us a little summary of of what you did to get there and a little bit of your message of what you're doing now to, to help people. So Bruce, here's the thing. When I got out, nobody, well, for the most part, nobody wants to hire a convicted fellow, but I did have history with Stewart. So they were willing to allow me to come back as a, a pre-arrangement counselor or field force, as they called it back in the day, knocking doors, selling for straight commission. And I bet you sold the heck out of it. Son, I'm going to tell you something. (laughs) I knew that I was not going to get many second chances. So I figured I better be their top salesperson because it would be easy to get rid of me. So in nine months, I was the top salesperson. No, I don't doubt that at all. And so they asked me, this is in Raleigh. They said, uh, the manager is getting ready to to, uh, step down. Would you be willing to to become the manager here? And I said, I believe I would. (laughs) And... So roughly two years later, it was one of the top performing locations that Stewart had in the mid-Atlantic region. And they said to me then, well, could you teach other locations to do that? And I said, you know, I believe I could. <laughs> and they said, well, we want to assign you to South Carolina and Georgia Stewart locations. Okay. So at the time I moved to Greenville and took over South Carolina and Georgia. A couple of years later, now by the year 2000, they said, well, could you take on North Carolina and East Tennessee? And I said, you know, I believe I could. So (laughs) I did that. And then in 2005, by this point in time in the the Stewart world, I had now become a senior VP of sales and marketing. So I was a senior VP in a public company as a convicted felon. Bud Kendrick at the time said, man, the the Texas market has just been floundering. Could you go to Texas and, and take over that market? And I said, I believe I could. So I went to Texas, which was the largest market for Stewart, had Restland of Dallas, which did bunches of internments and so forth. And I did that from 2005 to uh, the latter part of 2008. Somebody asked me the question. They said, um, how can you be a VP in a public company and a convicted felon? And just out of my mouth, I said, look, every choice has a consequence. Now I made a bunch of stupid choices in the mid eighties that in the mid nineties put me in federal prison, but I made a whole lot of different choices from the mid nineties that now in 2006 has allowed me to become a senior VP of public and in a public company. And there's still, still consequences, there's positive consequences for those decisions, right? Very well, true. Very yeah, true. that's right. That's the thing. Consequences don't mean bad. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's going to be good or bad depending upon what you do. But I recognized that if you are good at what you do, it's possible that people can look past your past and, and recognize, you know, do I bring something of value to the table? And if you do, people are willing to listen to that and to extend some grace. That is true. You moved up into Stewart. And then how did you start doing what you're doing with your ethics stuff besides well, your work now? So in 2006, I decided I, I, I need to go ahead and take this on the road. I always had a kind of a gift for speaking. So it was time to, time to do it. It, would, it had been a decade since my release, so it wasn't that I was doing this for the money. It was doing it because my heart was there and there was just a message. So that's how I actually began the, the speaking career. And I've, Bruce, I'll say this because uh, it really is important. 
I firmly believe if you are transparent, it, it things will be okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what you've done. I mean, that's very true. I'm sitting here thinking it. your transparency, you've been able to leverage not only your mistakes, but you use transparency to leverage it. And people accept transparency because everybody's got their own faults. They look at you and they, it's, it's true. What you're saying is very true. Yeah. I'll never forget. And I guess this was 2006, seven ish. I was asked to speak at the ICCFA. And, uh, you know, one of the breakouts, I wasn't the keynote speaker. Those guys get paid a lot of money, but it was you know, a breakout session. They want an ethics program. And I normally walk in in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs because it kind of captures attention. <laughs> and someone said to me, because at this point in time, now I was one of the founders of American Funeral Financial and, and we were just growing at the moment. And someone said, I don't know if I'd do that. If I were you that I, nobody will want to do business with you. And I'm like, well, you know, that may be true. But I, I, I can't, I can't in my heart hide the truth of who I am. People are going to know that anyway. So I remember walking in at the time, you'll remember this, but, but Forethought Capital Funding was, uh, was a player in the marketplace, a big player in the marketplace for insurance assignments. Will Butt Bischoff, as I recall, was, was one of the main guys with Forethought Capital yep. Funding. I'm walking in, I turn around, I look, and there is Will. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm either committing business suicide or this will work out. I'm not sure which, but my primary competitor is getting ready to hear me out myself. Never forget it to this day. He walked up, could not have been a kinder human being and said, that was very impactful. I've got all the respect in the world for you. Hmm. And our business literally in the death care industry just took off. And I think part of it is I will tell you the truth. Now, I'm not saying I've always been truthful, so I'm not right. going to, that's not true, right. but I will tell you the truth and I'll do everything I can do to help you. So I think people recognize that. And the fact that I was willing to out myself then allowed not only the speaking side of the business to flourish, but it also allowed the ability to uh, provide service in, in the, in the death care profession to flourish as well. Well, people do respect that, and I, I respect it. I want to let you talk about, give advice for other people here. I, I think they need to hear. I think they can glean from what you said, but I think you can say some things that people need to hear. I know you've written several books. Let's well, okay, first thing. The first book I wrote was called Second Chances, 23 Steps to Transforming Adversity into Opportunity. A lot of that talks about what we've talked about here today and the experience in prison. And the lessons to be learned from that. And the second book is called uh, Every Choice Has a Consequence, which kind of takes it from I'm out now, where does this go? And what are the lessons? And, and here are some that are real simple. Number one, always be truthful. Hmm. I have, Bruce, I, and this is not going to surprise you, but I literally get calls pretty much every week, if not at least every two weeks from somebody that's been incarcerated. I can't get a job. What do I do? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, number one, when you go to the interview, do you tell them you're a convicted felon? Well, no. Well, that's wrong. <laughs> okay. Lay it out on the line. If, I, if you and I were interviewing and I wanted to get a job, we'd have a nice conversation for about five minutes. And I would say, Bruce, let me ask you a quick question before we proceed. Does your firm have a policy against hiring a convicted felon? <laughs> now, you're not going to expect that question. So what you're going to do, you're going to tell me the truth. Well, we do or we don't. But why are you asking? Well, let me explain why. I am a convicted felon. 
And let me just lay out for you what took place. Because if your firm has a policy against hiring a convicted felon, we don't need to continue the interview and I don't want to waste your time. That's not fair to you. Now, if I did that, here's what you're going to know. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not going to find it on a background check. I am going to tell you that on the front end. It is better to be blunt and honest than to try to hide something. Because if you hide it, someone's going to go in your closet, try to find a bullet, put it in a gun, they're going to shoot you. (laughs) Because unfortunately, that's the negative side of human nature. So if you out yourself, then they can't do that. Now, people might not choose to do business with me, or they may not choose to hire me, or they may not like me. And it's okay. I don't have to be liked by everybody. But I at least know that I am going to lay the truth out because transparency always wins. The other thing, and I said this at the beginning, and this is so, so true, and that is your history does not create your destiny. History is past. Own it. Be responsible. Accept accountability for what you did. But it doesn't create your destiny. The choices you make today create the destiny that you're going to create. So if you want something better than what you've got, work for it. The reality of it is, if you say, well, they just won't give me a job. They won't give you a job. You're not entitled to anything. You earn what it is. So do what other people are unwilling to do. Now, for you and I, this doesn't seem bad, but the average person walking the streets thinking knocking on doors selling cemetery property is not an exciting job. So I don't care if you're a garbage man, if you're hammering a nail, if you're a janitor, I don't care what the job is. You be good at that job. So doggone good that the employer looking at you says, I couldn't do it without it. The the whole story, Chuck, is amazing. And I know that you have, there's no telling how many people that are listening to this, as I said at the beginning, that are either in trouble, have made mistakes, and think there's no hope or those that have people in their family that have made mistakes and they think there's no hope and they don't know what to say. And are there are people that are tempted right now to do some of the stuff you would do. And like you said, it starts pretty innocently and you have, you rationalize it out, but it can, it can unravel in a hurry. Chuck, I'll tell you this, I have a heck of a lot of respect for you, my friend. And what you're doing is powerful. When it's all said and done, you know I look at life with the end in mind. When we're all dead and gone. What people are going to remember about you is a man that made a mistake but was redeemed. You did things to be in a position to be redeemed, but God extended his grace to you from the beginning, from Mr. Stevens to the, the guy that you met on the phone in the hotel room when you were at the end of life. God was extending his grace. And at the end of the day, that's the message. It's, it's about grace. Can we just extend a little grace to people that mess up? Because we all do. It may not be that, but it's something. In my mind, that's the greatest message. That is the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is a message of grace and extending grace. And what a, what a story, man. What a story. Bruce, one of the things I, I, I don't say this to end uh, on my part. I was a music director in a church for 12 years. I am saved. 
uh, accepted my profession of faith as, as a teenager. I understood the message of the Bible. But when you experience it, it becomes so crystal clear. The experience of grace and redemption and second chances and love, and it changes you. And that has been probably to me the most profound impact is what I intellectually knew, I now have experienced through grace. And for that, that to me is the gift. That will be the message of your life. And that is the most powerful message you can have. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money we make, whether we drive a BMW or whatever car it is, that is the stuff that, that you'll be remembered. And that, God sees the big picture. And again, I'll say it again, it, it, it's not how you drive, <laughs> it's how you arrive, brother. And God Amen. bless you. Thank you, Chuck, so much. Folks, you can order his books. Absolutely. Just go to Amazon.com and you can find them. And Bruce, the other thing I will say is if somebody has personal questions, if they feel like I just need somebody to talk with, you can go on my website. My telephone number's there. It's chuckgallagher.com. I'm happy to talk with people because people extended that to me, and that's my pay it forward. Right. Chuckgallagher.com. Thank you, my friend. God bless you, Chuck. You take God bless care. bless you too, Bruce. Thank right. you so much. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.